Well, what would you do if you only had, uh, this is a little morbid maybe, but if you only had 40 days left on this earth, what would you do? How would you fill that 40 days? Um, would you write your memoirs so you could leave it uh, as a legacy to your family? Um, would you look at that bucket list and pick the top five things you want to do and say, I'm going to get this done in these last 40 days of my life? You have 40 days, what are you going to do? Going to get together with those old friends one last time and, and um, just kind of talk about old times? How about emptying your bank account and uh, contracting some sculptor to, to make a bronze statue of you that you can put in <laughs> the backyard? You got 40 days, what are you going to do? Well, Acts chapter 1 tells us what Jesus did. He had a final 40 days, and we get some insights on how Jesus filled those 40 days. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're continuing, just getting started really in this study of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, starting right there. Verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And last week, we looked at that a little bit. Uh, Luke wrote two volumes, right? The Gospel of Luke was volume 1, and then he continued. That was the first account. He wrote it to a man named Theophilus, who he uh, designates in that Gospel account as most excellent Theophilus. He was probably a government official of some sort, a man of means, probably a friend of Luke's. And he writes... Volume 1, what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, I'm writing now volume 2, all that Jesus continued to do and teach. What Jesus did with his disciples when he was here on earth, and what he continues to do through his disciples who remain here on earth. Two volumes, massive. Luke wrote more uh, of the New Testament than any other writer. Verse 2 goes on, though. It says, he did this until the day when he was taken up to heaven. But he wasn't taken up to heaven until after, it says, he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And to these, the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, verse 4, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let me mention three things that Jesus did in his final 40 days on earth. The first thing, he proved his resurrection. He presented himself alive. Verse 3 says, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing, or the new King James says, infallible proofs and appearing to them over a period of 40 days. He rose from the dead, and he went to his disciples, and he said, here, it's me. Put your fingers in the nail prints of my hand. Thomas had doubts. And when he appeared to Thomas, he said, hey, stick your fist in my side. It's me. Many convincing proofs. I am alive. I mean, how shocking that would be. And yet the New Testament, the Gospels, uh, records that he appeared at least 10 times to his followers, to his disciples, in, in different uh, occasions and occurrences. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, which that's amazing, 30 years later, and, and Paul is saying, you want to check it out? He met with 500. Most of those people are still living. He said, if you have fallen asleep, go ask them. <laughs> he appeared to James, then to apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What did Jesus do? What was kind of preeminent? He appeared alive, and he gave proof to it. It's me. I mean, how are you going to send these followers of yours out on a worldwide mission, um, you know, if they've never seen him alive, uh, with, with just an empty promise? Convincing, infallible proofs, many of them. He took that 40 days convincing his followers, it's me, I am alive. And folks, we'll talk about this in just a moment. But what, what other religion in this world has its founder, its leader, who was once dead and was raised to life again? Nothing. There is nothing like the Christian faith because our Lord, our Savior, was dead and he came back to life again. Man, oh man. I mean, the, the world doesn't get this. And, but we have it. We've got that truth. I mean, if, why hang our head? Why, why cower in fear? Our Savior is alive. And, and, and maybe we just need to be more aware of that and, and um, when we engage people in the marketplace. You know, we can get off on so many things, so many tangents, <laughs> like I'm doing right now, but we can get off on so many tangents uh, and get caught up in, in people's uh, disgust of this or or you, do you follow that policy, or you believe in that politician, or what, what about all the suffering in the world? You get off all these things. You know where we all have to always come back to? What do you do with Jesus? Because he said he died and would die and rise again. Now, if he didn't, all bets are off. If he did, man, that's astounding. What do you do with Jesus? How do you, how, what, what are you going to do with them? And there's some great resources out there. Gary Habersmuth, uh, has a, he's a scholar who's done a lot on the resurrection of Christ, the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he's got some great tools. He's a foremost scholar, I think, on the, uh, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lee Strobel's book, the, the Case for Easter. Hey, buy, buy some of this stuff and just refresh in your mind the truth that there is an empty tomb outside Jerusalem, and that's the foundation of our faith, folks. And we can boldly go into this world with this truth. That's what Jesus was trying to do to his disciples. You're going to be my witnesses. So here's, here's how you're armed with truth. It's me. He says, I'm alive. It really is me with many convincing proofs, he told his disciples. That's the first thing he did in his final 40 days. Here's the second thing he did. It says again there in verse 1 and 2 of Acts, the first account, the Gospel of Luke, it was all about Jesus, what he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After, he wasn't taken up to heaven until, by the Holy Spirit, it says he had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. He gave directions. He gave orders, marching orders, 
to his disciples. Now, we're not sure all what was involved in those orders for 40 days, but according to verse 4, we know that he gathered them together, and it says he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Now, I don't, I don't know if he commanded that because you know, they, they saw him alive and, and uh, how excited they must have been. You know, they're loaded for bear. Let's go out and take the world, you know. And he just ratcheted it back and said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Go to Jerusalem and wait. He, he calls them here, by the way, in verse 2, he gave orders to the apostles. Um, usually they're called disciples, but now they're called apostles, the word that means sent ones. He's sending these people in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the world. But before they're sent, he says, just hold it, chill, go to Jerusalem, and wait. That was his orders. Wait for what had been promised on high, the Holy Spirit, to come. Don't do anything without first having the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we also know, like from Matthew, the great commission, Matthew 28, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the key verb in that verse, there's one verb, it's the word make disciples. There's um, supporting participles, go and baptize and, and teach, but it's all a part of the process of the main command is go make followers of me. Go make disciples who will follow after me, who will observe all that I've taught. And so as Jesus had his final 40 days, that was part of what he was doing, proving his resurrection time and time again when he appeared and, uh, and teaching them, giving them these, these marching orders of what to do. There's a third thing that Jesus did uh, in his final 40, and it says there in the last part of verse 3, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. See that? Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, if, if you do a study of the word kingdom in, in the Bible, it's a, it's a fascinating study. It's, it can be confusing, too, because there are some verses in the Old Testament like um, in, in um, Psalm 93, verse 1 and 2, or Psalm 103, verse 19, Daniel 2, that talks about a universal uh, overarching, the sovereign rule of God. Right now, right today, there is a sovereign God in glory. He's not up there biting his fingernails, wondering what in the world is going to happen next. He is in charge of this world. He is the sovereign ruler, has been from the beginning of time. Sin did not change that, that end of the world. He has a plan that he's unfolding. It's right on schedule. Why? Because he is universally, he is sovereignly ruling over all. His kingdom stretches from all over, from all time. The universal kingdom of God. But as you study that concept of kingdom, you also realize in most of the scriptures in the Old Testament and the prophets, Talk about something that is, is smaller or, or more contained, earthly, um, the reign of, of the anointed one that's going to return. Um, Jesus took his last 40 days and talked about the kingdom of God uh, because it, it was his specialty. I mean, that's what he did when he was here. The first account, the Gospel of Luke, it's all over. 
I think 41 times in Luke's gospel, this concept of the kingdom of God is repeated, is talked about. Check it out, 41 times. Kingdom of God are, are referred to as the kingdom of God. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. He was sent for the purpose, he said, to proclaim, to communicate the kingdom of God. In chapter 8, verse 1, soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another. What was he doing? Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Or the next chapter, chapter 9. And he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim what? The kingdom of God and to perform healings 41 times. In Luke's gospel, this idea of the kingdom of God is communicated. It was his specialty. He communicated, taught on the kingdom of God. He spent the last 40 days before he ascended in heaven doing the same thing, teaching them on the kingdom of God. And why wouldn't he? I mean, Gabriel comes to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to be pregnant, overpowered by the Holy Spirit, she will conceive and give birth to a son. And Gabriel says in Luke chapter 1, he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There it is, kingdom. Why wouldn't Jesus, now in his years of ministry here on earth, go about teaching about the kingdom because he was the king that Gabriel said would sit on the throne of David and would reign and there would be no end that, to that kingdom. Um, so he communicates that kingdom. Where did Gabriel get that idea of, um, of this, this kingdom idea that there would be this throne of David and a coming king who would reign? Where did, did Gabriel just kind of pull that out of the air and say, hey, this will be a nice little message to tell Mary. No, he got it from the Old Testament. So, for instance, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel said, one like a son of man was coming. And in this vision, that son of man came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, all men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 9. By the way, you read through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is identified as what? The Son of Man. And here's a prophecy of the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and he gets a kingdom. And all the nations will come and worship before that kingdom. Or here's a familiar one, Isaiah, the prophet said, a child is going to be born to us. A son is going to be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. A kingdom is going to be established, and someone is going to reign, this child, this son of man, on the throne of David, and there will be no end to his government and the display of 
the justice and righteousness and shalom, the peace, the wholeness that he's going to bring. Where? Where is this reign going to take place? Where did Daniel get the idea of Jerusalem and and Isaiah? Where where was this coming from? Um, It was coming from God himself earlier in Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above all the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And it says, and many peoples will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jeremiah said it this way. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. A king is going to come. A kingdom is going to be set up, and the seat of authority is going to be Jerusalem, because this person is going to sit and reign on the, it says, the throne of David. Where did David reign? Last time I checked, it was Jerusalem. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God over and over and over again. It was his destiny. It was his calling. He said, that's why I came. It was ever present in his mind, because he was the fulfillment of all those passages. Now, he taught about the kingdom of God so many times, so often, that the religious leaders of the day were starting to get sweaty palms. I mean, they were getting nervous. They were getting nervous because they knew exactly who Jesus was. I mean, these guys were experts in the law and the the Psalms, the the prophets. They, they They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They knew the Old Testament prophecies of this coming son of man, this this king, and they also knew that Jesus fulfilled every one of those Old Testament prophecies. They knew who he was, believe me. And that's why they knew they had to get rid of him. And they were getting nervous about him being there in their presence. And there's a fascinating little passage in um, Luke chapter 17. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Because um, they get nervous and they come and actually question Jesus about the timing of this kingdom. Uh, Okay, you've been talking about the kingdom of God plenty. Um, When is it going to happen? So Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21 says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, because they were in deep trouble when it came, he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. And then he says this, For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, you may have, an, I think, an NIV translation that I, I, I humbly would submit that it's translated wrong. The, I think the NIV says the kingdom of God is within you. Um, the other translations are accurate. He is in your midst. What is Jesus saying? They're questioning him about when is this kingdom coming? And Jesus saying, I'm here. It's right here. I'm in your midst. He's the king. He's the king. Um, He was standing right before him. I think what Jesus is saying, it's right here within your reach. 
if you care to accept it. When's this kingdom coming? Here I am. If you care to accept me, it's here. And of course we know what happened. Jesus actually told a parable in um, chapter 19, earlier in chapter 17, about the man who went away to receive a kingdom, and he comes back, he sent his his, uh, messengers and the prophets, and they killed them all, and then the he came, he sent his son, and, and they did away with him. They said, oh, this is the king, and we will have none of him. A few weeks after Jesus had this encounter with the Pharisees, what are the people saying? We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. When's this kingdom coming, Jesus? It's right here. Right here in your midst, if you care to accept it. And they didn't. Now, keep reading in chapter 17 because now he turns to his disciples, verse 22. He says to his his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. They will say to you then, look here, look there, but do not go away. Don't even run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes, verse 24, just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So will the Son of Man be in his day. Um, Jesus is saying, look, a lot of people are going to say, oh, there, oh, it's here, it's here, it's there, it's there, there. He said, don't buy it, don't believe it. It's not a, prog- a, a slow uh, appearing thing, like you've got to check this thing out. No, it's going to be like a, a flash of lightning that's going to streak across the sky and then appear. So will the day of the Son of Man be. And he goes on and uses an analogy, two Old Testament analogies. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, verse 26, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given into marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same that's happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, you know, they were just doing life. And then verse 29, on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, and then it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. In an instant, it happened, verse 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. We have no king but Caesar. And that flipped the switch for now judgment to come as they reject their king. Two chapters later, just a few weeks later, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus now comes into Jerusalem. The excitement of the crowd on that, what we know as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry of Christ. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, highest. our king has come. Oh, the disciples must have been thrilled. In fact, just a little bit earlier, James and John, their mom comes and say, hey, you know, bargains for a position of glory, one at your right and one on your left when the kingdom comes. Because, man, it was coming. It was here. Jesus is marching into Jerusalem. And what do we read in Luke 19, verse 41? And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, 
but now they have been hidden from your eyes. It says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. They will surround you, hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you. And it says, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Judgment was going to come. John the Baptist had warned them. Same thing. Repent. Change your mind about God's plan, about the, the program of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. But if you don't, John, read it in Matthew chapter 3, an axe is ready to lay bare. It's going to, it's going to chop it down, and judgment's going to come. Two chapters later, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus prophesied that the kingdom was not going to come until something else takes place. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. Something horrible is going to take place in this world. Jesus called it the time of great tribulation that's going to fall in this world. And um, he gave the Jewish people a chance and they rejected it and that kingdom <clears throat> from all our understanding my understanding of the scripture Jesus pulled it back and says okay the son of man has to suffer many things and there's going to be great trial and tribulation upon this earth and then one day like a lightning streak a bolt across the sky he's going to appear the Son of Man will come. And when you recognize that, when you see that, know that the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus will come back, just like Gabriel had prophesied, just like the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. And the skies will open, and he will descend in power and in triumph with all the saints with him. And he will come to Jerusalem, and he will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and the Bible says, and he will reign supreme. And everything in this world that has been wrong will be made right because the king will rule. And folks, it hasn't happened yet. Now, I realize and I understand there are godly scholars and theologians who would understand and teach that we are currently in the kingdom time. And if we're talking about that universal overarching reign of God, that's true. He's never stepped from the throne of glory. He's fulfilling his program, but when we're talking about the kingdom of God that the prophets of old talked about, that Jesus talked about, if we're going to take scriptures at face value with a literal interpretation, I have to say that's not here yet. It hasn't happened. It's coming. It's coming, but it hasn't happened. It's still future. Um, and watch out and wake up because it's going to come. And so important was this teaching that Jesus in his final 40 days, it says there back in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he taught the disciples 
his apostles about the kingdom of God. I find it interesting that he didn't talk about the church of Jesus Christ. He didn't talk about how to ordain elders and deacons. He didn't talk about how to structure church polity and, and those type of things. He, he, he talked about the kingdom of God. It was ever-present on his mind. And that's why, as we study the book of Acts in the next th three, four chapters, it was, it was so impactful, this teaching on the disciples. That's all they talked about the coming kingdom of God. In fact, Peter will say in verse 6, we'll see this next week, but I'll give a little hint for next week. But verse 6, uh, Peter says, they come to the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem, and he says, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Where did Peter come up with that idea? Well, Jesus had been talking about it for 40 days. And Jesus didn't say, oh, Peter, I spent 40 days, you, you missed the point. No, he didn't correct them. He just said, it's not the, the content of what you're saying. The kingdom is going to come, but it's the timing of it. It's not for you to know the times of the apex that the Father has set. He's coming. I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming back. But it's not for you to know the when. You just be my witnesses. Um, as, we, as we wrap up today, though, I want to go back to this idea, this Jesus, the first thing Jesus did in his final 40 was to, with many convincing proofs, reveal that he was alive. What would have happened if it had all been a myth that the resurrection had never taken place? I mean, the, the disciples are kind of hunkered down, they're fearful, they're wondering, you know, where's, it going to, where's Rome going to strike next? One of them I had to remember, yeah, he said something about, you know, kill this body in three days, it'll, it'll all rise again. But, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and nothing happens. I'll, I'll tell you one thing, we wouldn't have a book of Acts, we wouldn't have anything. Disciples, I'm sure, would have scattered like little cowering animals to the far reaches of the empire, hiding. If it was only a myth we wouldn't be here today. Now, Paul tells us in very clear terms in a passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there real quickly as we wrap up this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. What would happen, what would happen if Jesus had not raised, been raised from the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, well, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. This makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? Moreover, verse 15, we're found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, well, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, guess what? Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And then those, verse 18, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And what Paul is saying, let me give you six resulting conditions if the resurrection didn't take place. Six of them. Here's the first one. 
our preaching would be totally in vain. It's a word that means empty. It, it's like, it, it would, it's a word that would describe if I had a box up here that was nothing but air. I lift the lid up, what's in it? Nothing, it's empty. Vacuous, void. It, there, there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. And Paul is saying, all the preaching you've ever heard, you know, the 32 years I've been here, man, we've, we've gone through Zechariah and Daniel and Hosea and, and uh, Isaiah and, and uh, Romans and Galatians and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter and James. And we've, it would all have been nothing. It would have been a pure waste of time. Folks, if Christ has not been raised, what in the world are you fools doing here this morning? That's what you would be absolute stupid if Christ was not raised because preaching would be hollow, an empty box. He says, second of all, our faith then would be empty. What we're preaching, this Christian faith, he says, and he uses the same word, would also be an empty box devoid of no substance whatever. Lining up against all other world uh, religions, it'd be all, all in the same, all the same, if Christ had not been raised. Your Christian beliefs would be absolutely nothing. He says, verse 17, he kind of repeats himself, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. And then he changes one word, that word worthless. Not only is your faith empty and vacuous, it's, it, would, it would get you nothing. You know, if someone came up to you and says, hey, what, if, I, if I followed Christianity, what, what would I gain? What would be in it for me? And if Christ had not been raised, we'd have to say, well, honestly, absolutely nothing. The Christian faith would be hollow, empty. It would be of no point. It would be, there's no substance to it. It would be aimless, pointless. Fourthly, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then we'd still be in our sins. And notice, Paul says, he doesn't say our, sin, our sins will still be in us. He says, we would still be in our sins. We would be, well, one commentator explained it this way. To be in our sins means to be in their deadly sphere where all our sins surround us and then accuse us before God as so many deadly wolves about to tear us to pieces. We'd be, we would be in our sin. We'd be surrounded by all those sins that would declare before God our unworthiness, like ravenous wolves about to tear us to pieces. We'd still be in our sins. What horror, the supreme disaster if Christ had not risen from the dead. No resurrection, the great chasm that exists between sinful man and God would, would still be there. When Jesus said, I, or John the Baptist said, here's a, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus said, as a, as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up for the purpose of, of paying for our sins. Coming to die on Calvary's cross to pay for the penalty that was due us. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Well, big deal if he stayed dead because we'd still be in our sins. And every promise he made about paying for our sins would be empty, be gone. 
And then he says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died in Christ are forever lost. There's probably no one in this room who has not lost a loved one to death, the great enemy, the last enemy. And if Christ was not raised, they would be in an eternal abyss, forever lost in sin. Because if Christ had not been raised, there's no hope. No hope at all. Every child who has died, every infant that has died, every unborn baby that's been aborted would all be lost for all of eternity. There is no hope if Christ was still in the tomb. None at all. And finally, Paul adds in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. We'd be the most pitiable people on the earth. If Christ is not raised, we who follow him as our king, as our savior, as our Lord, who maybe have given up all sorts of things, maybe have endured laughter and ridicule, and for some people around the world, down through the centuries, their very lives have been given. For what? For nothing. If Christ had not been raised. Nothing. We'd be the laughing stock of the world. Again, here we are, wasting good, precious time giving money to missions and, and whatnot, sacrificing things for our time and stuff for the, for the Lord. For what? You dumb Christians. And people have actually given their life. To this very day, Christians around the world are dying because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And if he had not been raised, it is absolutely for nothing. It's absolutely stupidity. We would be of all people on this face of the earth most to be pitied. Christ had not risen from the dead. And aren't you glad Paul didn't leave it, but he went to verse 20. But now, <laughs> Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you can see why. When he was raised from the dead in his final 40 days, he went about giving many proofs. It's me. I'm alive. Now go get him, because he's alive. And folks, as Christians, I don't know what it does to you. I don't know if you're stirred in any way. You, you know, we're kind of the frozen chosen here at Fellowship Bible Church. But my goodness, we leave here today. We serve a risen Jesus. He is alive. All, all bets are off in terms of life, because he has ra- been raised from the dead. Everything we believe in, everything we're going to count dear in terms of our faith, it's true because Christ is alive, and he's coming again. And the kingdom of God is going to be established, and he's going to reign supreme, and everything in this world is going to be put back together again in proper order, because he rose from the dead. He's alive. Our faith is not hollow. It's not an empty box that is devoid of substance. We have the word of God that we can study and learn and understand the heart of God. And we can do that conscientiously with vigor, because Jesus rose from the dead. We have forgiveness of our sins. When Jesus went to the cross and said, I'm going to pay for your sins, he meant it, and he rose from the dead, so he sealed it. He actually accomplished it. We can stand before God one day. If you know Jesus as your Savior, 
We can stand before God one day, and he is not going to bring up one sin that he'll accuse us of and dangle hell over us and kick us out of his, remove his promise from us. Not one. Not the sin you're going to commit 10 years from now or I'm going to commit five years from now. They're paid for under the blood of Jesus Christ, and they've been buried, they've been removed as far as the east is from the west. They've been paid for by the shed blood of a risen Savior, and he's not going to hold it over us. It's a free gift that he gives us. Why? Because he rose from the dead. What he promised, he carried out because he rose from the dead. We are no longer in our sins. We're not defined by that. We are new creations in Christ because he rose from the dead. Those loved ones that have passed on, that either died with a long illness or suddenly just one day they were gone. If they knew Jesus, they're more alive today than they ever were walking here on earth because he rose from the dead. That's true. And deep down in our soul, no matter what sacrifices, no matter what we've done for Jesus, no matter the pain, the suffering, the ridicule, the persecution, and it's going to increase, and it's going to increasingly become intense in this country because of the name of Jesus and all what the Christians have done down throughout the centuries, it is all worth it because he's alive. He's alive. No wonder Jesus, in his final 40 days, presented himself alive with many convincing truths. Because before he sent those people out to conquer the world with the good news of the gospel, he wanted to make sure I'm alive and the gospel will triumph because I am. And in our own lives, when God calls us to serve him, when we head out today and this week into our world of school, of, of work, into our homes or wherever it is, folks, we hold our head up high and with boldness and with joy, we testify to the reality of a risen Savior and that's how the gospel triumphs. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth that is given to us and the absolute assurance we have absolute assurance that we serve a risen Savior, that you are fulfilling your purposes, God, in your eternal plan of the ages. And one day, Jesus, you're going to return and wow with a shout, with the voice of, of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and this world is going to, it's going to see you, the risen Savior and Lord. And we're so grateful, Father, that in your love and mercy, you called us to an everlasting relationship with you so that we can proclaim that good news, the excellencies of you, a risen Savior, and that this good news of your payment for our sins and your resurrection from the dead can be proclaimed and triumph in this world. And this is what we pray, Father, even for this week in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.